0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. This is episode 28, Constantine and Britannia sitting in a tree. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Brian, Chris, and Igor for signing up already. So Constantius Chlorus is dead in Aboricum, modern-day York. Possibly from eating too many Yorkshire puddings, but probably not. You can never get too many Yorkshire puddings. But he is still dead, and thanks to the Tetrarchy system set up by Diocletian, we already know what's going to happen. Galerius, Augustus of the Eastern Empire, will automatically step down and the two Caesars that had already been appointed will become Augusti and we will have two new Caesars appointed, which is really bad luck for Constantine because that basically ends his career in politics. And if that was what happened, this would be a very short episode. And also we might be wishing each other a married Deus Natalis Solis Invicti in honor of the birthday of Sol Invictus. Yep, December 25th was the birthday of the Roman sun god. Am I blowing your minds right now? Well, how about this? Bethlehem is pretty cold in December, and it's unlikely that any shepherds would be putting out their flocks into the field in the dead of winter. And Luke says that the herds were out there at the time of Jesus' birth. I'm just saying... On the other hand, I'm Dreaming of a White, Dios Natalis Soli Invicti doesn't really have the same ring to it. But I guess We Wish You a Merry list does work pretty well. I don't know. Oh, one other random fact about Christmas. Some of the first recorded Christmas trees were burned as part of the celebration. It turns out the National Lampoon's Christmas vacation was more traditional than you might have thought. Anyway, Constantine. Remember him before I got into this big tangent? Well, he's out of a job, right? Wrong. After all, what was the point of all that effort getting permission for Constantine to join his father on campaign if it was all just going to fizzle out in the end and left Constantine retiring to spend more time with his family? To hear Constantine's panegyrus tell it, this was the work of the gods, and he was on a divine mission. But more likely, it was either luck or a move of sheer brilliance and foresight on the part of his father. But given how many moving parts there were in the potential plan, it was probably all just luck that Constantius died in Britannia. Luck that he died, you're saying? Yep, that was really, really lucky. I mean, let's not forget where he was. Britannia had a reputation. No, not that one. That they may take our lives. But they'll never take freedom! Yeah, that's the one. It had a reputation for rebellion and usurpation. And it was going to make good on that reputation once more. See, here's the thing about the Tetrarchy. It was new and weird. And not at all what the people were used to. And more importantly, not what the soldiers were used to. Roman soldiers were devoted to the hereditary principle, and it's a testament to Diocletian's power that he even got the soldiers to accept the Tetrarchy in the first place. But Diocletian was retired, and the soldiers were chafing at this new system. When Severus died in Aboricum, this was ages ago, but when Severus died in Aboricum, the succession was clear. It wasn't necessarily a good succession, because neither of those boys were particularly, you know, good. But it was clear. Now, when Constantius died, well, what was supposed to happen? They were supposed to have two Galarian allies who were unknown to the British legions take the title of Augusti? Why? Because Diocletian said that was the way it was? Hell, it wasn't even clear that Galerius would step down. He might just stay in power and absorb the Western Empire. All in all, that can't sit well with the legions of Britannia. And all of that unease was spurred on by Crocus, the Germanic king who commanded the Alamanni cohorts in Constantius' army. King Crocus, whose name belongs in a Batman comic, thought that there was a much better option right there amongst the army. Someone who was known to the troops, who had proven his ability to lead who was a child of an Augustus, and someone, Crocus hoped, who would treat the Germanic people more favorably than the Eastern Caesars. I'm speaking, of course, of Constantine. Look at it this way. The emperor died in a distant land while on campaign with his victorious troops, and accompanied by his son, who was already an officer trusted by the troops and victorious in his own right, Can you think of a more perfect situation for a hereditary proclamation by the Roman army in the field? It was like it was all meant to be, which actually is something that Constantine would later push, that this was all divinely appointed. But anyway, the Roman army proclaimed Constantine emperor, and he happily accepted, of course. I mean, who would turn it down? And he also showed a preference for German troops and officers, which I'm sure was to the delight of King Crocus. And I wonder if I can find a way to say that name a few more times in this podcast. King Crocus, (laughs) Awesome. Anyway, so it's 306, and far on the other side of the empire, Galerius was probably shaking off another hangover when he received word of the victorious army of Britannia making Constantine an Augustus. And Galerius probably immediately realized that Constantine was now the de facto ruler of the Western Empire. I wonder how he reacted to the news. I mean, was it a full-blown temper tantrum? Or did he remain mostly calm and simply swear off drinking wine with his political prisoners? Or maybe he was just living in the present and saying something like, "Oh, Oh, never again. Well, what was I thinking? Rumplements and buttershots? Well, whatever his reaction. He didn't get too long to take it all in because soon after, he was informed that Maxentius, Maximian's son, remember Maximian? He was the Augustus of the Western Empire before Constantius. Well, Maximian's son, Maxentius, was also passed over by Diocletian. And so Maxentius thought, hey, if Constantine can just make himself an emperor, why can't I? So Maxentius declared himself an emperor, with the support of the Praetorian Guard. See? They're meddling again, those Praetorians, man. You can't trust them. And actually, the Senate also threw their lot in with Maxentius, but that was probably just because they were eager to be relevant again, and also were wanting to support an Augustus who, you know, was actually in Rome, which was becoming increasingly rare. So we have rebellion everywhere. All in all, it's a bad day for Galerius. A day when, you know, you could use a drink. And once again, we hit a very dramatic point in history that takes place largely off of our island. So I'll just give you the bullet points that affect our story, and if you want to know more, there are plenty of podcasts out there. There are also books and documentaries to fill in the gaps for you. So after a short period of, well, probably panic... And also, probably after a few stiff drinks, Galerius managed to get Constantine to agree to step down and accept the title of Caesar of the Western Empire. And actually, Constantine would now serve under Severus, who was raised up to the title of Augustus. Constantine was now formally subordinate to Severus, at least on paper. But it's really hard to imagine how Severus would have had any actual power in the West. After all, the legions were loyal to Constantine, and that couldn't have escaped Severus' notice. So here we are, witnessing the fall of Diocletian's attempts to prevent dynastic struggles. Basically, the Tetrarchy failed to put an end to the issue of multiple mutually suspicious emperors that have been so common since the days of, well, Commodus, really. But this fall will take 18 years to play out. Hooray! So it's 307. That's one year after Constantine went to Gaul as an emperor. And now Constantine has returned to Britannia. Of course, he left the island as an Augustus and returned as a Caesar. So that might have been a little bit awkward. But it seems that he busied himself with, well, of course, reminding everyone of his divine mission, but also building roads and whatnot in the region. There are no fewer than 19 milestones that mention his name, many of which were built during this Caesar speed bump that Constantine was dealing with. And he probably was also building improvements in major cities, such as Aboricum. And boy, did Aboricum get the lion's share of attention, which isn't surprising since that's where he was elevated. I mean, the walls of the fortress were rebuilt, and the great riverfront was restored with a series of towers, which, by the way, made up one of the most impressive military buildings in the West for its age. It must have been a sight to see. And that wouldn't have been by accident. After all, Constantine was living in the era of Diocletian, and so he had seen how magnificent structures could be used effectively as propaganda to essentially elevate him to divine status. And since he was running around saying that he's being guided by God, being elevated to divine status is, well, a pretty good idea. But this wasn't all just for show. Aboricum was still in a rather dangerous position, given its proximity to the Picts and Saxons, and the refurbishments had a significant military value. Additionally, the garrison at Aboricum was at least partially restored. And it wasn't just Aboricum that received this treatment. Deva, which is modern-day Chester, was also restored, and large open spaces were provided within the fortress walls, probably to allow larger mobile forces to camp within the walls, since the town was becoming more urban, and the soldiers could no longer simply just camp outside the fortress walls. There just wasn't room for them anymore. And this ability to camp was important because the armies weren't as static as they once were. One of the reforms at this time was to remove the organization of the army from the provinces and governors and instead put them under the command of generals. And these generals held the title of dukes. These dukes had command over several provinces and essentially eliminated the strange system where provinces had their own legion, a system that was basically just the side effect of campaigning. So in Britannia, we had a Dukes Britanniarum who commanded vast forces that were assigned to him rather than just being assigned by geographical area. This, of course, would make operations a lot easier. I mean, could you imagine the logistical nightmare of dealing with multiple governors to supply just one army? Instead, now the supplies came from a centralized department. Anyway... That was a huge tangent. So many towns, including Aboricum, began to be rebuilt and had new open spaces within the walls that would be perfect for a detachment to camp down in. And now I should note that it's possible that Aboricum was remodeled by Probus, Carousius, Electus, or Constantius, dating spotty at best. But I think that Constantine had one of the better reasons to do it. So we're just going to assume that he did it. So this was quite a lot of expenditure upon military matters. Even the roads have military functions, after all. So what gives? I mean, we've seen Britannia weather the storm of the 3rd century more or less unscathed. So what's with all the building? Well, the new villas and extensions on homes is rather obvious. There was probably a flight of capital to Britannia from Gaul, thanks to all the instability. We've seen that before. But it wasn't just villas. I mean, we were seeing towns fortifying themselves. Emperors paying for refurbishments and renovations of fortresses. There were roads being built. There had to be a reason for all of this. Well, we know that there were Pictish and Saxon raiders. It seems that Constantius didn't completely deal with the Picts. So maybe that was the reason. But a hint at what I think is the real reason lies in the fact that the villas weren't getting fortified, unlike their Gallic counterparts, which were. So we had towns being fortified, but not villas. This indicates that this building program probably wasn't entirely military in nature. It was probably political, and due to a restructure of defensive tactics. And we see further evidence of this in the writings of the late 5th, early 6th century historian Zosimus, who criticizes Constantine for withdrawing the frontier troops and placing them in towns. This would go in line with the rebuilding we've seen evidence of. You'll note that I didn't put the wall on the list of rebuilding, but town defenses were. Perhaps the rebuilding campaign was a result of a reimagining of defensive tactics, and honestly, if that's what Constantine did, it was a smart move, and it should have been done as soon as the Picts figured out that you can get on a boat and go around the wall. You see, the tactics of the Picts and Saxons made the wall, while not irrelevant, at least much less effective. The wall was really good for stopping raiders that were land-based or were actually much better at stopping just invasions. But for stopping small raiders who were just coming in to raid, you know, economic centers, the wall wasn't that good. I mean, he had a whole bunch of troops, but they're stationed far away from the city, so if they managed to get around the wall, the cities were not in a good way. Also, Constantine was living in a state of near-constant civil war, and he was all too aware of what happens in Rome when there are multiple distrustful emperors. And he knew of the reputation of Britannia for propping up usurpers. I mean, hell, he was one of those usurpers. Having his troops within major economic centers would provide him with a degree of political control. While it would also protect the towns from anything short of an all-out siege, so they're basically fine from raiders. And it had the added benefit of making the troops rather happy since no one likes to be stationed on a wall out in the middle of nowhere. And besides, it would also have a calming effect on the civilian population, since they knew that the might of Rome was nearby and able to stop the raiders and bandits, rather than being on some post far away where it wouldn't do anyone any good, and then they just come back every now and then to ask for more money, and then go back out to their wall and, you know, don't do a damn thing. So all in all, it was really good for defense, it was good for military morale, it was good for civilian morale, and it was good for politics. Basically, Zosimus can just shove his criticisms right up his ass. Personally, I think Constantine did the right thing. So Constantine was rather busy when he visited, and it turns out that he'd be very busy when he returned to the continent. And it's all very exciting and dramatic, but of course it happened on the continent and not much affected Britannia until 312. So let's fast forward to 312. So in 312, the single biggest event in the life of Constantine occurred. He visited Britannia. It's true. Well, it's true that he visited Britannia, but it's not true that that was a major event for him. Something else happened in 312. And it was this event that makes him famous today. It set him on the path to be known as Constantine the Great. It was the Battle of Milvian Bridge. So Constantine was involved in an imperial struggle against Maxentius. Remember him? And before the battle, he looked up at the sun, Probably praying to Sol Invictus, and saw a cross of light above it with the words in Greek that translate to, In the sign you shall conquer. He wasn't entirely sure what he was seeing, and only after an alleged discussion with Jesus did he realize that it was related to Christianity. The sign, by the way, was Chi Rho, which are the first two letters in the Greek alphabet for the word Christ, and those first two letters look to our eyes like X and P. Anyway, so legend has it that he slapped that sign on his standard, went into battle, and routed Maxentius and his Praetorian supporters. Funny side note here, Maxentius, the guy that Constantine defeated, yeah, he was at least as tolerant of Christians as Constantine. Kind of tough break for him. Anyway, so following the battle, Constantine did something pretty smart. He dissolved the treacherous Praetorian guard and later reformed it so there was essentially just a civil service handling administration. That was necessary considering how huge the Roman bureaucracy was getting. I mean, to keep them also commanding armies was simply too much for them to handle. But it also gave them too much power, and considering their long history of military usurpation and murder and just being absolute rat bass, leaving a lot of power in their hands wasn't the smartest thing to do. So at long last, the Praetorians have their wings clipped. Anyway, so Constantine was victorious at Milven Bridge. But here's the thing about Constantine. He wasn't above rewriting history, especially if it would make him appear divine or at least guided by the divine. So did he see something? Who knows? And if he did see something, did he equate that with Christianity? Well, from the record, it seems that he didn't at first. And actually, he seems to have still been pretty tight with Sol Invictus following his victory over Maxentius. Even in 313, there were coins showing Constantine with Sol Invictus. There wasn't really a widespread use of the sign until later battles. I mean, perhaps he was victorious and he wasn't entirely sure which God helped him through it. After all, I mean, he was staring at the sun, uh, which is, you know, the domain of Sol Invictus. But then again, there are also stories that he chatted with Jesus and learned it was Christian in origin. So maybe he was just a little confused and hoping to hedge his bets since he was in the middle of a civil war and needed any help he could get. Anyway, regardless of whether or not there was a sign, and if there was a sign, what he thought of it initially, eventually he was all about using that particular sign, the X and the P, as a Christian sign. And I'm sure this is going to surprise no one. He converted to Christianity, the religion of his mother, St. Helena. And that's actually not too surprising. I mean, he never really was that anti-Christian. We don't even have any record of him destroying any churches, also known as Basilica, during the Diocletian purges, though he did strip them of their wealth. But considering what he was supposed to do during these purges, that was seriously the least he could do. Although I imagine he must have felt at least a little guilty about it. But now that was all behind him. He was one of their number. He was 42 and a newly baptized Christian. And among the rules he set out following his conversion were that Christians were not allowed to get circumcised. Frankly, I think that's a pretty good move for an uncircumcised 42-year-old man to make. It would be like, Whoa! Put down the knife. Really. Put it down on the table and back away. We're not doing this. I'm going to pull up my pants, and we're just going to pretend this never happened. Well, actually, it probably wasn't like that. Christians weren't circumcised back then anyways. If you want to know why it's so prevalent today among Christians, don't look to Constantine. Instead, look to John Harvey Kellogg, the cornflakes guy. And no, that's not a joke. But anyway, I still think that Constantine's rule was a good insurance policy, just in case a particularly zealous priest got a harebrained idea. Anyway, so Constantine was now a Christian, and avoided a rather painful procedure to boot. This could have been religious fervor, but I think that Constantine was a little too shrewd for that. I suspect that it was a calculated move since Christianity was picking up speed within the empire. And if it wasn't that, I would guess that it was Constantine's effort to trade up to a more powerful god. As we mentioned last week, the Christian purges failed to fix the economy. And now Constantine was winning battles while carrying a sign he believed to be Christian. Maybe it was just a bit of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It wouldn't be the first time that someone made a promise of piety on the eve of battle. You know, there are no atheists in foxholes. But regardless of the reason, he was now a Christian, and running half an empire that has spent decades persecuting Christians. Awkward. But he wasn't going to let that continue, of course. So now it's February 3, 13, and Constantine is the emperor of the West. Licinius is Emperor of the East, and together they developed the Edict of Milan. This was a pretty big deal for the empire, and thus it was a big deal for Britannia. That's because it ended the persecution of the Christians and mandated that property and whatnot were to be returned to them. Being Christian was no longer a crime in the empire, and actually, if you were in the Western Empire, it was considered a perk since Constantine was pushing Christianity pretty hard. And considering that Britannia already had three martyred saints, I think it's safe to say that the edict and change in policy immediately affected a lot of lives on the island. And Constantine continued to popularize it as best as he could. He wasn't one for half measures, after all. The Edict of Milan demanded that property be returned to the Christians. But Constantine went the extra mile and donated large sums from his own treasury to Christian churches. Actually, as an interesting side note, this decision could well have led to the revival of the tradition of bequesting one's wealth to the community. Only this time, instead of it going to the public as a whole for the creation of amenities to be used by the community, these were given instead just to the church who used it for expanding their holdings and to aid the poor. Even today, people continue to bequeath money upon the church, and few know it's a Roman custom that dates back to Constantine. But don't let me convince you that the church was rich at this point. There are indications that it really wasn't. There are a few records of bishops having a hard enough time just getting money to travel off the island. So the idea that all of a sudden the British churches were rich overnight is probably a myth. Anyway, Constantine didn't just give money to the churches. He also granted substantial rights and privileges to men in Christian orders. He even said that in a suit between two parties, either party could have a case transferred out of court and to the local bishop. And get this, the secular authorities were required to enforce the bishop's judgment in that case. See what I'm talking about there? Basically, if either person within a case thought that a bishop would give them a better hearing, they could go to the bishop, have them decide the case... And then the local Roman army or whoever was required to carry out the judgment. It's a hell of a thing. So anyway, what I'm saying here is that while one can raise questions about what Constantine originally thought about the sign he says he saw, and poke holes in the myth of his sudden belief at Milvin Bridge, no one can doubt Constantine's zeal following his conversion. He was in with both feet. And his enthusiasm dramatically changed lives, as well as the course of the church. I mean, the year following the Edict of Milan, Britannia sent three bishops, a priest and a deacon, to the council at Arles. Imagine that. One year earlier, they were criminals, and now they are being dispatched to a grand council of the church to settle a dispute within it. And actually, that gives you a good indication of the state of the religion on the island. Britannia already had three bishops, and chances are the priest and the deacon were there to represent a fourth bishopric. And you might find this interesting. That council failed, and Constantine himself arbitrated the matter. So now church matters were a concern of the emperor and actually could be decided by him directly. What a change a few years can bring, right? Oh, and speaking of the influence of the emperor upon the church, vicar, diocese, legate, yeah, those were all originally Roman civil and military titles. Anyway, now that it was free to practice out in the open, Christianity was flourishing in Britannia. In all likelihood, there was already a large population of Christians in Britannia. The population was probably growing in the pre-Diocletian era, since there wasn't any serious persecution of Christians for quite a while, until Diocletian, of course. And then under Diocletian, Britannia, at least for some time, was under the comparatively moderate rule of Constantius who allegedly went no further than destroying churches during the purges, and then under Constantine, who also was quite moderate. I wouldn't be surprised if the Christian population boomed during that period as religious refugees fled less tolerant regions. And that tolerance, which led to the province retaining many of their churches, combined with the refugees that could have come in, might account for the prosperity Britannia experienced, which is... Actually, fairly substantial when seen in comparison with Gaul. But really, the point here is that Britannia might have been a hotbed of Christianity. But was it the sort of Christianity that Rome would approve of? It seems that many Christian Britons would worship Christ alongside their own Celtic deities. And later this century, we're going to see a major heresy that will be born in Britannia. Pelagianism, named after its founder, Pelagius. Pelagius disputed St. Augustine's concept of original sin. And actually, many of Pelagius' thoughts closely paralleled Druidic views on the divine. So once again, Britannia wasn't content with the status quo. But anyway, the point is that Constantine had started something much larger than he could have imagined. And now Christianity was growing steadily in Britannia. But whether or not it was the kind of Christianity that Rome would like is another matter. So that same year, 314, Constantine decided to divide Britannia into quadrants. Now that he was the emperor of the West, he didn't want to have to deal with any attempts at usurpation, and he was all too aware of the island's reputation. Are you ready for a war? (laughs) Yep, that's the one. Additionally, the economy, population, and whatnot on the island were just getting too large to leave it in the hands of just a couple governors. So Britannia Inferior was divided into Britannia Secunda, with Aboricum as its capital, and Flavia Caesarianus with Lindum, or Linden as it was originally known to the Celts, or Lincoln, as it is known today, as its capital. Britannia Superior was divided into Britannia Prima, with Corinium Dubonorum, modern-day Cernchester as its capital, and Maxima Caesarianus with Londinium as its capital modern-day London. And of course, while he was dividing up the land like this, he was in Britannia. So we've got yet another visit to our island by Constantine. All in all, I think that Constantine might have fallen in love with our rainy little slice of heaven. And then something happened in the period between 315 and 318. We're not sure what happened, but at the end of it, Constantine claimed the title of Britannicus Maximus, So presumably, he fought and beat someone in Britannia. But as to the specifics, we're mostly left to our imaginations. But here's some food for thought. There were some serious problems with Saxon and Pictish raids for quite a while in that region. And then they suddenly lessened. So perhaps he was dealing with the Saxons or the Picts. It's as good of a guess as any, I suppose. But anyway, now he was Britannicus Maximus. And he was on the island again. Good for him. Then in 324, Constantine eliminated his last rival and became the sole emperor of Rome. And then went about claiming that this was proof that he was on a divine mission that brought his power all the way from the far west, Britannia, to the far east of the empire. So even in his messianic imagery, Britannia is still featured rather prominently. So now Christianity is in full swing in Rome. The imperial cult didn't go away, though. It was just absorbed. But now he had to incorporate a new group whose members were recently hunted as revolutionaries and convince everyone that they were now the basis of a new religion that was a true manifestation of loyalty. Whether or not you actually believed in Christianity, by the way, was irrelevant in imperial circles. Regardless of what you might believe, you needed to be a Christian for social and political reasons. In many ways, within imperial circles, it was like being part of a political party. But again, I'm skipping over a ton of stuff, including Diocletian being brought out of retirement like George Foreman in an effort to stop civil wars, and tons of paranoia over conspiracies. But if you want those stories, there are plenty other podcasts that will serve you well. All right, well, that's about it for today. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Uh, before I leave this topic entirely in Soul Invictus, I was wondering if anyone else ever gets the sun god vibe from looking at old paintings of halos, like people who have been anointed and have halos around them. It just kind of looks like a sun to me. Maybe Soul Invictus is still around and was just absorbed into Christianity. It's an interesting thought. Anyway... If anyone has any questions, comments, or concerns, you can go ahead and email me at the British History Podcast at gml.com. You can also contact me on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash British History. You can also go directly to the website, the British Anyway, on behalf of myself, my wife, and my three-legged, cross-eyed, toothless, cauliflower-eared, potentially cancer-free dog. I would like to wish you the happiest and merriest of Dias Natalis, Solis, and D. Until next time.